If it's your first time joining us, uh, welcome. Uh, my name's Char. I am the teaching pastor here at Refuge. Uh, so um, <clears throat> I say this every week, but we've ded- dedicated this year to uh, the year of biblical literacy. And basically, that just means that we as a church are reading the Bible for ourselves, some of us for the first time, but really to know it firsthand, to know what it teaches, uh, to know the main storyline of the Bible, and in order to be shaped by it. And so on Sunday mornings, we are taking time to kind of stop and look at the main themes and characters of the Bible. And right now, we're doing a little mini-series called A Creative Minority. And what we're looking at is... Uh, the idea behind this passage here in Jeremiah 29. Um, I shared this before, but I think just good for context. When God's people were taken into exile, remember it had been just hundreds and hundreds of years of unfaithfulness, of injustice, of unrighteousness, um, just of evil. And God's people were called to be like God, to be gracious and compassionate to be those who upheld righteousness and justice. Anyway, after many, many years of God warning and calling them back to faithfulness, God brought judgment by the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar, and God's people were taken to Babylon. And what happened there in Babylon is that as the people approached the city, they decided that they would not go into the city but that they would settle on the outskirts of the city, out of the wall, by the river. And they did this because they they thought, we can't be defiled by the pagan Babylonians and by their gods. Now, of course, it was paganism that took them into exile. So maybe this is resolve for them. Like, we're going to change. We're really going to, you know, hunker down and be the people of God finally. But it's interesting. God actually sends this letter by Jeremiah to tell them, no, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to go into the city, and you're going to be my representatives in that city, and you are going to seek the peace of this city, and you're going to seek its prosperity. And after the exile is over, I will come to you. I will bring you home. I will visit you. I will restore you. It's actually a very hopeful passage of scripture. And the church for centuries has kind of looked at this situation with Israel. It's looked at the book of Daniel as what it might look like for the church to be in kind of an exilic period, a a period where God is not physically ruling and reigning on earth. We are under the leadership and often the tyranny of world leaders who are corrupt, who are unrighteous. And we're in a culture that is so, uh, you know, just its mindset is so prevalent, it's so toxic. And so what might it look for, like for God's people to live faithfully in the various cultures and influences of the world? And so that's what we're trying to do here on uh, for the series is just kind of step back and think about what does it mean for refuge? What does it mean for the church in 2019 to be a creative minority, uh, a, a community within a city that represents the kingdom of God? And so we've been doing that for a number of weeks. And we've been looking particularly at the fact that Daniel and his friends were not living in a ghetto. They weren't closed off from the culture around them. They weren't just, you know, a community within a community, but they lived in such a way as they influenced the community around them. Remember, they were high up in the Babylonian government. They were influencers in that government, and yet they were loyal to the covenant of, of the God of Israel. 
They were faithful Jews in exile. And you can find all throughout the story of Daniel is that pagans, foreigners, those who don't know the God of Israel keep coming to know him, coming to realize who he is and realize his gracious and good character. So let's look at that this morning. Uh, I quoted this last week. Jonathan Sachs, he is the UK's chief rabbi. To, To kind of explain Daniel and the Jews throughout centuries, he called them a creative minority. And he says, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is the demanding and risk-laden task. Now, In my observation, the church has kind of gone to one side or the other with this. Either the church has fled from culture and protected itself from culture, or engaged culture to the point of being colonized by culture. And Jonathan Sachs is envisioning something that is kind of a happy medium, where we engage culture, but he says we stay true to faith and transform the larger society through it. John Tyson, um, Carissa mentioned him a moment ago, he takes this and applies this idea to the Christian church, and he says this, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of their city. That is a beautiful vision for what it means to be God's people, of what God calls us to. He he isn't calling us to change the world. He isn't. We can't do that, (laughs) you know. Uh, I always find it funny, you know, when sometimes you drive through Santa Rosa and God bless these people, but, you know, the ladies in black. And I'm just like, I I just wonder, like, like, we're not in Sacramento. We're not in L.A. We're not in San Francisco. We're not in Washington, D.C., you know, good heavens. What are you doing on the corner of college in Mendocino that you really think by lifting up this sign is like, everybody's like, oh my God, I never realized. Thank you, lady in black. You know, like, and it's just going to like change the world. It's, it's dishonest for us to, to sit in this room and to say, you're a world shaker. You're a world changer. We're going to change the world. We're not. But you know what? We can influence our own community. We can affect this community for the kingdom of God. And that is what God calls the church to do. And I believe that that is what the church has done historically. They haven't said, we're going to change the world, but they have loved their neighbor as themselves. They have thought about the person across the street, across the road, across town, and how they can influence that person with the love of God and the good news of the gospel. And so that's what God calls us to. Christian community that thinks about reaching the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now this morning, I want to continue talking about this vision of a creative minority. Um, I think, first of all, I need to start by saying last week, um, I don't know if it was my excitement about what I was talking about, uh, or if it was just um, an anxiousness, 
but I feel like I sped through some really, really rich content, and I was almost like force-feeding people. So uh, that is not uh, who I want to be. I don't want to just do an information dump with you guys. Uh, that's not my heart. I know that that's not how we assimilate character. Uh, we are more than just brains. Um, so I want to slow down. I want to speak to hearts. And I believe that God is after our hearts. He's after our desires this morning. So I want to speak to that. So I'm going to try to slow down this morning. And rather than talk about uh, three points this morning, we're just going to cover one. I'm going to cover one. Um, so this morning we're going to talk about how a creative minority is defined by countercultural ethics or a distinct moral vision. So let me just kind of lead into that. So when we think about what it means to be a creative minority, we should be thinking in terms of Jesus' radical vision of the kingdom of God and its people as seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we talked about this last week, but it's a, it's a people whose whole world and life is radically different. Uh, it's a people who are tuned into a different frequency, right? We're kingdom-tuned people. Um, joy, joy Chim Jeremiah, I love how he kind of summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, What is taught in the Sermon on the Mount are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourselves, church, should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. I love that because it gives us this vision of what might it look like when God, by his Holy Spirit, upon his people, begins to move in a city, begins to move in a place. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to do, at least in part, is to give us this kingdom vision for how to live and then to play that out. So, of course, we, we do this. We, we live as salt and light influencers, I believe, as practicing the way of Jesus, practicing the Sermon on the Mount. Karl Barth said this, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of of promise, a new sign, a different way of living, a new vision for what it means to be human, a a new vision for what it means to thrive, what it means to flourish, what the good life might look like. And so this means that our kingdom witness isn't just about critiquing or deconstructing culture, maybe like the Jews would have been tempted to do outside the city walls, right? Or even as a ghetto within the city, just kind of like critique culture at an arm's length and be removed from it. Instead, it's about living out a new kingdom of God vision for human identity, purpose, and flourishing. And this will include radical dissimilarity, and new incredible hope and potential. It will, I believe, jar people, wake them up. What is this? We're the same, but we're different. We're you know, both living in Sonoma County, and we share a lot of the same passions, and yet there's something radically dissimilar about us, about our priorities, about our view of what it means to flourish, of what it means to live well. And also, we talked about this last week, but there's a new incredible hope and potential. We were talking about how the secular narrative 
offers us an unlimited freedom, but little meaning. Now, people look at Christians, by and large, and sometimes they are very correct about this. Wow, you people are so, you know, rigid and, you know, just like restricted and you're like neo-Puritans, right? And in some sense, okay, yeah, they might be right, at least in comparing with the culture now. But what the Bible gives us, it does give us limited freedom, but it gives us unlimited meaning. Because we have been created by God. We've been created in his image. We've been created for his glory. We've been created to grow into that image. And the potential within that is, is, is in some senses, is unlimited, of course, because we know it will go on and on and on into eternity. So the question is, how do we live as salt and light in the world? How do we live as this creative minority? And we talked about six, twice, do that twice, six ways, covenantal community, I'll mention that one more time before we get into our study this morning, compelling narrative, countercultural ethics, counterformational practice, kingdom allegiance, and redemptive participation. So just to cover last week, we talked about a creative minority being defined by covenantal community. And what I mean by that is, Our influence in our city and our county around us will be determined by the level of our self-sacrificial commitment to one another and our neighbors, and our willingness to see things through even when things get hard. Remember, Jesus talks about this. They will know that you are mine, my people, my followers, Jesus' people, by your love for one another. And that is not mushy, romantic, erotic love. That is the biblical idea of steadfast, unfailing love. Stick to itness. That is what God's kingdom people to be marked by, covenantal community. Will Willimon, he said this, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. I think that might cause some of us pause to say, do I build community and friendship the same way non-Christians do it? People who are like me, people who I think are cool, people who I think are beautiful, people that are influential, or am I doing it based upon the Jesus criteria? Faithfulness. People that need to be loved. Because Jesus has lived, died, been buried, risen again, and ascended. He's created a whole new family, and I don't get to decide who's in. I don't get to decide who's cool and not cool, who should be my friend and who shouldn't be my friend, who deserves my respect, who deserves my faithfulness or not. Jesus gets to decide that. Are we practicing that kind of community? Point two that we made last week, a creative minority is fueled, driven, and framed by a compelling counter-narrative. Both of these points, I think, are really important for our third point. That's why I'm going over them again. But this is talking about the full biblical story of God's loving relationship with his people. I mentioned this a moment ago. Made by God, made for God. And out of that understanding flows a substitute vision for the economy, for education, for human sexuality, and 
a whole, you know, a whole slew of other areas. All of these larger issues fit into this all-encompassing story. This is the way that we look at the world through the biblical redemptive narrative, through the story of God. It's how we view God's relationship to humanity and his desire for us, and it changes everything. Now, the point we want to focus on this morning is this. A creative minority is defined by countercultural ethics and a distinct moral vision. And if with this point, we really are driven back to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the people of God, or creative minority, I think goes without saying, are not formed by the culture around them. Whether modern, enlightenment mentality, postmodern, secular, spiritual, or religious, God's people are formed by God, by his word. And particularly by his son, Jesus, and by the way of Jesus. Jesus, we've talked about this many times at Refuge, Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King. Our King defines for us right and wrong, goodness and truth. And in Jesus' life and teachings, he gives us a distinct ethic, distinct principles of what it means to be under his rule and reign, what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And as I said, these are specifically laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, which is often referred to as the kingdom manifesto. Like, you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? You want to know what it looks like to be part of his kingdom? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there are all sorts of, I think, wrong ways that you can interpret and use the Sermon on the Mount, and many people have done this in the history of the world, but I do believe that this might be the most important document for the church. And I believe that even most of the epistles are simply taking Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, particularly, and applying them to the church. Church, I think we need to be Sermon on the Mount kingdom manifesto people. We should know that sermon backwards and forwards. Know what it teaches and be constantly applying it to our lives. It should be the benchmark for God's people, for the church. Now, in this sermon, Jesus lays out right this vision of the character and ethics of his people. And so let me just kind of map, just quickly, right? We're not going to go through the whole sermon this morning. God forbid. I would not do that to you. Not again, anyway. Um, but right out the gate, when Jesus describes who the, who the real, flourishing, thriving people of the world are, you can already see where this sermon is countercultural to the way the world thinks, not just in 2019, but since the beginning of time. Jesus says this, the needy and dependent, broken-hearted, mourning, little, lowly people are the ones who are thriving, the ones who are truly living life the way it was meant to be lived. And to them belongs the kingdom of God, ultimate comfort, and the right to the earth. 
Now, I mean, that is just so absurd. Like, if nobody else is thinking it right now, I'm just going to say it, okay? That's absurd. Little, lowly, mourning people have the right to the earth. No, no, no. Just look around you. It's the shrewd. It's the harsh. It's the scheming. It's the evil. They will inherit the earth. Maybe the church will get heaven, but the earth definitely belongs to the shrewd, right? And yet, that's not how it's going to go according to Jesus. No, no, no. It's the exact opposite. It's totally upside down from the way the world works. He continues listing those whose sole desire is for righteousness and justice to be done in the world. Those are the flourishing people. That social justice language from the Bible, justice and righteousness, and it especially concerns God's quadrilateral of justice. I believe you can look at Zechariah, I believe it's 7.10. God constantly lists out the father, the, the widow, the poor, and the foreigner about those who is, he, he is concerned with, those who he has just this bleeding heart for, the weak, the poor, the disenfranchised. And so Jesus says, those whose sole desire is to see righteousness brought to these people, justice brought to those people, those are the thriving people. Those who practice mercy, making it part of their identity. The merciful. I mean, just think about, what if the church was actually known in that way? Oh, you mean the merciful? Is that how the church is known in in Sonoma County? Are we known as the merciful people? I would gather that we are probably known as the judgmental people. Not the merciful people. I would gather that we are probably not known for the social justice people. And yet, this is what Jesus says his people are to be about. Jesus says that his people are to be the ones who go around making peace. And yet, we find gossip, backbiting, all sorts of, you know, just sliding in the church as much as in the culture. And yet, Jesus' people are to be peacemakers. It says that they're to be true, sincere, genuine people. What you see is what you get. Their word is their bond. They're also a people who suffer for the good that they do. Now, Jesus goes on to talk about anger, lust, fidelity, nonviolence, which is some, one that people in the church don't often talk about, forgiveness, loving our enemies, praying, seeking and implementing God's kingdom values and ethics, living that kingdom as a reality here and now. And what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is so truly counterculture that even the church has many times concluded it must be written for the future kingdom of God. You can't actually live like this. Your life would be a living hell. People would just walk all over you, Stop for a moment. It's the whole point. It's the whole point of Jesus' sermon. His people are so radically countercultural to the way the world works. Yes, Jesus does use hyperbole in this sermon, and so please, for the love of God, do not go home and cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. But understand, this is serious, intense, radical ideas. 
that Jesus is giving to his church, and he wants us to implement this vision here. It's the whole point. Shouldn't the people of God live in a way that defies the common practices and perspectives of the world and our culture? As a matter of fact, yes, Christians' lives should be lived in a way that both resonates with the deep longings of our culture, meaning purpose, and yet simultaneously defies the power, practices, and idols of that culture, ultimate unlimited freedom and happiness. As Eugene Peterson famously said, the church is to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Now, when we witness the kingdom of God, we bring what we were talking about last week. We bring disruptive witness. We we shake things up. When you don't live according to the status quo of everyone around you, it ruffles feathers. It bothers people. It causes people to notice. We, We bring disruptive witness when we... Church value people over profit. Whatever the color, whatever the creed or religion, whatever the class. We bring disruptive witness when we love and serve and protect the worthless person. The widow, the single mother, the poor, the unborn, the foster child, the mentally ill, the cripple, the elderly. You think about what's going on right now in our culture. Anybody reading up on personhood theory? You should be. Because more and more our culture is deciding that humans are not persons until maybe around two years old. And since they're not a person, they don't have the the qualities of other type of uh, human beings. They are not fully evolved yet. Then we have the right to decide whether they can live or whether they can die. And we're doing this with the unborn, we're doing this with babies, infanticide has come back into mainstream conversation. We're also doing it with the elderly. At what point in time do we get to decide that someone is not fit to live? So the more and more we see this conversation uh, you know, gaining steam in our culture, the more we will stand out as those who protect the worthless person. And I don't mean that these people are worthless, but I mean that they are worth less in our culture's eyes than other human beings. The more our culture moves into personhood theory, the more threatened these image bearers of God will be, but the greater opportunity to show the values of the kingdom of God. Going on, when we forgive and love our enemies... A community that restores faith. You think about also, again, what's going on in the culture. There are many people who are being taken out of their authoritative position. They're being deposed, right? Denounced. And yet, you don't hear anything about reconciliation. You don't hear anything about forgiveness. There's no hope. It's just we have deposed and taken these people down, and we have blotted out their name from society. And yet what we find in Scripture again and again and again is God is the God who does not overlook injustice. No, he deals with injustice, but he is also the God who restores face. He removes shame, and he restores humans to their proper place. He deals with sinners who are under the wrath of God, he applies the work of Jesus and he makes them human once again. 
image bearers of God. And I do believe that it will be and is our job going forward, church, to look at those who our culture has ripped the face off of and to ask, how are we called to restore the face? How are we called, again, to be peacemakers and to bring reconciliation in our culture? We bring disruptive witness when we sacrifice our own comforts for the sake of serving and blessing others. We bring disruptive witness when we care more about truth, honesty, and right doing in the workplace rather than popularity and praise. We bring disruptive witness when we live out kingdom ethics. That is when the kingdom of heaven and the gospel are affecting the social fabric of our world. John Tyson, in his book, A Creative Minority, which is, yes, where we got the title for this sermon series, would you believe it? He says this, we are witnessing the distortion of God's creation, the bending out of order of what the world was called to be. It is our calling, out of a deep commitment to one another and an alternative story, to begin to use those created goods in their proper order so people see an alternative way of flourishing. Rightly ordered hearts lead to rightly ordered lives. When our hearts have been changed by the person of Jesus, the good news of what he has done for us, and a vision of the kingdom of God, these reordered hearts will begin to impact the culture around us. Now, Tyson is, he's correct here. He talks about we see the distortion of God's good creation all around us, especially in sex, money, and power, right? Those are very prevalent still in our in our culture, and it's the calling and responsibility of God's people to use the world's resources and goods properly and in their proper place so people around us can see God's kingdom way of flourishing. Again, it, what the, I think the church has done in the past is we've just stopped doing these things. We stopped doing the normal things of life on planet Earth or seeing those things as unholy or you know, necessary evil. But the idea here and the idea in Scripture is not that we do the same things that our culture does, but it's how we do those things. That's the dissimilarity. It's the values. It's the ethics. Now, forgive me just for one moment for using this because I know that there are some people in this room who are... Uh, who, do not drink and should not drink. And so I am not endorsing alcohol by saying this. But what I have found is that for, I think, so long, the church just, you know, practiced teetotaling. We're not going to drink. We're not going to use alcohol. And I think what that created was just a bunch of people doing it secretly anyway, right? And so I'm getting into lots of trouble doing that. But I often think about the alcohol issue in this way. We look at the world around us, and people are abusing sex all the time. Never once have I turned to my wife and said, all right, babe, that's it. Look, look what people have done with sex. We're done. We gotta, we're just not, you know, it's just not going to happen anymore. <laughs> of course I never had that conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who do you think I am? Um, what do we do? Yes, the world is abusing sex, and, and I would say actually probably more prevalently in marriage maybe in some of these other areas. So what do we do? We practice a self-sacrificial, complementary marriage for the world to see. So also with alcohol, 
We don't just get rid of something good that humans have cultivated that is, in Scripture, often used as a way to celebrate and to enjoy one another and to enjoy the good things that God has given us. But my argument would be to redeem that and show what it looks like to use it in its proper place, to use it as a thing of joy, not something to suppress what's going on, but only as a way to celebrate and to enjoy fellowship with one another. Now, if you have issue with what I'm saying, I, again, I'm not saying that anybody in this room like, has to drink alcohol, or, and some of you shouldn't drink alcohol. But the point is, we often do this with things that are neutral. We take them, we say, okay, well, we can't do that thing anymore. But what, what's going on in, in God's, or excuse me, Jesus' vision for his people is how we do life. Not that we just remove ourselves out of the cultural stream, but it's how we live in the cultural stream. Not our sameness, but our difference. All of this being shaped by the self-giving love of God, supremely displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, you could even take love of neighbor. You just insert that in alcohol. If you just keep that at the forefront of your mind, what loves my neighbor? You know what doesn't love my neighbor? Getting sloshed and barfing all over my body buddy and barfing all over his car and being that guy that nobody can trust, right, and nobody can rely on. That is not loving my neighbor, and that is not what alcohol is intended to do, right? So if we just keep these principles before our mind, we can filter these things that God has given us. Now, kind of going off on this idea then, right, I think about recent conversations in our culture through the Me Too movement. I think about that phrase that was very popular a while ago, the future is female. Why is this happening in our culture? Why should the future be female? Well, because our culture has failed to honor the opposite sex. We have either disregarded, dismissed, or objectified and abuse power in doing so. Yet when we think about the solutions to all of this, the answer isn't to get rid of men. Good luck, right? Or any other swinging of the pendulum. What will bring true healing to our culture is when we live as God created us to be. God's vision of flourishing that we see in Genesis, male and female in complement to one another, not in competition. Naked and unashamed, that is vulnerable and trusting. Ruling over creation, cultivating life, all under God's gracious rule. Church, we need to model this in our marriages. We need to model this in our friendships for the culture around us. A culture that either wants to get rid of the opposite sex or redefine sex altogether. We are called to show the glory and goodness of what it means to be male and what it means to be female and to celebrate the difference. Image bearers of God in complement to one another. We need to model leadership and power that shows the gracious and compassionate rule of God rather than the domineering, objectifying, abusing power of our culture.
I think another example of how we use this world's goods in a redemptive kingdom ethic way would be what Tim and Kathy Keller talk about in their book, Meaning of Marriage. If you haven't read this book, whether you're married, you're single, this is an excellent book for just understanding God's purpose in marriage. But they talk about how the early church was strikingly different from the culture um, around it, and it was in this way. Listen, they said the pagan society was stingy with its money, but promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. Like, if we just did that, how radically dissimilar we would be, right? How radically we'd, we would stand out in our culture, sexually conservative and financially liberal. Who are you people, right? Like, wh- wh- where do you come from? You don't fit into our categories. Now, as I mentioned last week, every human is trying to make sense of the world around us. What's wrong with the world? What will make it right and where everything is headed? Now, when we live distinctly as the people of God, especially in the vision of the Sermon on the Mount, it brings that disruptive witness, this cross-section and collision of people's worldview with reality. We, church, are witnessing the kingdom of God that is both radically dissimilar and yet brings incredible hope and meaning to the world. So, a question before we close. What if our church and the churches of Sonoma County actually lived as signs of the kingdom? What if we actually put into practice in our hearts, in our homes, at our work, around our neighbors, in our politics, the upside-down kingdom ethics of God? We would have impact. Now, would we change the world? No. But we can change our city. We can change our neighborhoods. People would see, and God's kingdom would be put on display. Now, in closing, the focus of a creative minority is not economic systems. It's not sexual morality. It's not maintaining positions of political power. Rather, the focus is on creating disciples of Jesus in radical community who are financially liberal or promiscuous, remarkably faithful and humble to serve those around them, who don't just tell but live by their ethics a powerful and more compelling narrative than the culture around them. And in this way, God uses us as salt and light in the world, as a community that is disrupting the natural order and status quo of things around it. And we will be right in line with our spiritual parents and family. Listen to what it was said about Paul and his friends in Acts 17. I love this. Of course, the world was much smaller then. So, you know, I was saying all this stuff about not changing the world. But listen to this. These people who have turned the world upside down have come to our city as well. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Caesar's Lord. Caesar's the boss. Caesar's king. And what Caesar says, he defines right from wrong, goodness and truth. He defines flourishing. And it says, these people say there is another king, Jesus. Listen to this. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things disruptive witness 
That's what happened through Paul and his companions. I think C.S. Lewis gives us a a beautiful beautiful description of our calling, and I'll just close with this. If you're one of those individuals that does better assimilating to, is to close your eyes and just kind of be quiet. Maybe, maybe you would do that as I read through this. This is one of my favorite Lewis ideas. But he says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. So if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, the kingdom of God, which I shall not find till after death or till the Lord comes. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. And listen to this. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. The main object of my life is to live as a disruptive witness of the kingdom of God. To never forget that I belong to that kingdom. To shape my life according to the way of Jesus in community with you. And to help others do the same. To live in this city, to live in this county in order to bring my friends that don't know Jesus, my neighbors and coworkers, to bring them to that cross section. That's the work of a disruptive witness. Lord, we talk about the kingdom of God and being disruptive witness, and it sounds, I don't know, it can sound so, I guess in some sense manipulative, like we're trying to trick people. And yet, Lord, it causes me to pause and think about the potency of spiritual deception that is over humanity. The spiritual deception that even lies over a city like ours and a county like ours. What are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? We're talking about total and complete healing and restoration of everything that we hold dear, of everything that is precious to human existence. A healed relationship with you, our creator, our own healed souls, our own healed ego, talking about healed relationships with one another or where we have brought brokenness through our own selfishness. We're talking about a world that is polluted because of human greed. 
and of being totally and completely healed, thriving and flourishing. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, may that vision of the kingdom of God never get snowed in. Help us. Help us to help one another. That that would not be poached by others around us, or that our own hearts would not be led astray that we, we would keep that kingdom vision always before our eyes, that we would help one another to do so, all for the glory of our great king who laid aside the treasure and glory of heaven, came and lived and suffered among us, died, was buried, and rose again, ascended to the Father to rule and reign and to bring us into that glorious kingdom all for the name of Jesus. Would we remember that? Would we help one another to remember that, Lord? And through this work of disruptive witness, would you shake things up in our city? Would you shake things up in this county so that, Lord, as life is shaken, they would seek truth. They would find meaning and purpose under King Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.